Well, it's been a great Sunday already, and uh, I'm just so thankful for Bill and Pam. We had a marriage class here at the church on Zoom, I guess, a few months ago, but I would encourage uh, you to take a marriage class by sitting down with Bill and Pam and asking them a, a few questions when you get a chance. Uh, I think uh, you would really, really be encouraged. There's a lot of accomplishments in life to to be thankful to God for, but I'd say 60 years of marriage is really one we should uh, really be thankful for and learn from those who have gone through 60 years uh, enjoying God and enjoying one another. Uh, but it's a privilege now, obviously, for us to be able to spend some time in our Bibles. And so if you haven't already, please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are in uh, chapter 1, which means we're right at the beginning of studying this book. Uh, it's not Christmas, but we are in Luke 1, uh, verses 26 through 38, and I don't know if we're going to get through the, the whole book. Uh, the idea at the beginning was just to focus on seeing Jesus in uh, some specific passages, and yet it's also good. It is uh, hard to skip anything, so we'll, we'll see. But either way, however we, we do it, we're definitely looking at the first couple of chapters where Luke is introducing Jesus, Luke chapter 1 and 2, and he is beginning by getting us ready to see the glory of Jesus. And sometimes when you're at the beginning of studying anything, uh, studying a book of the Bible, uh, really it helps to answer some basic kinds of, of questions. So, uh, for example, one really basic question you would want to answer, actually anytime you study the book of the, a, a book of the Bible, is uh, what kind of book exactly is it that you're studying? So like uh, Song of Solomon, <laughs> obviously. Say you were studying Song of Solomon, looking at the Song of Solomon, if that's the book you were beginning to study, it would obviously be kind of important for you to know what kind of book Song of Solomon was. Otherwise, you're going to have lots of different ideas about what it means. And that's not just true for a book like Song of Solomon, which is poetry. It's also true for other books of the Bible, uh, like, of course, the book we're studying. If we're going to benefit from Luke, it helps to know what kind of book is it exactly. And maybe you don't even think to ask that question because it doesn't seem very complicated. If you look down at your Bible, you can see that your Bible even tries to help you know what kind of book this is. Right there at the top of the page, it says, the gospel according to Luke. And I don't know if Luke actually titled his book that way himself. That's a title that most likely was given to this book, but it has a really long history. It goes all the way back to at least the second century when they started bringing all these different works together into one unified Bible like Romans and Mark and Revelation. They had to put some titles on them so that people would know the kind of books they were reading, and they gave these books the title, The Gospel According to, and that word gospel was there almost from the beginning as a kind of explanation as to what kind of book they were, they were studying. Well, what kind of book is Luke exactly? It, it's a gospel. But what's a gospel? That's, that's another question, right? It's a, it's a word that can have some different uses. So like if I said I was going to preach the gospel to you, uh, what would you think? You wouldn't necessarily think that I would tell you all these stories that we read here in Luke. That's not how we tend to use the word gospel. You would probably more expect for me to explain 
the meaning of what happened to Jesus and maybe preach from a book like Galatians or, or Romans. And that's because the word gospel is a word that has some different uses. So when we say that Luke is a gospel, we have to explain a little what that means. And there are some different ways to do that. But one simple way is just to look at how Luke explains what he's doing in verses 1 through 4. Because you remember verse 1, what he's doing, he says some things happened. Literally, some things were accomplished. And many of those who saw the things that happened, talked about them and wrote about them. And what they said and they wrote was then taught in churches all over the world. And Luke, because of his connection with Paul, had a unique opportunity. And so he investigated what they said and what they, what they said happened and decided to take what he learned and write it down in a particular way to accomplish a particular purpose. And uh, that's a lot of words, but really that last part is the part that is especially important because what is Luke doing? We know he's writing history. He's clear about that. This is from eyewitnesses, et cetera, et cetera. There are sources and all that. Uh, there's investigation, it's history. But listen, it's history for a purpose. In other words, Luke is a historian and he's a preacher and he's using history to preach. And you know, he's not hiding that. That's what he means when he explains how he wrote it. He says he wrote an orderly account. He took history and he arranged it a certain way. Why? He explains why, verse four, so that you might be certain. In other words, Luke has got an agenda. He's bringing all these stories together about Jesus a certain way so that Theophilus could see that it really did accomplish what the apostles and other people who were preaching about Jesus said it accomplished. So if you think about Luke's relationship with Paul, I think it helps you understand how he's writing this gospel because Luke was a traveling companion of Paul and Paul was going around preaching what? We know one of the things Paul was preaching, probably right around the time that Luke was writing this gospel, actually, because Luke actually tells us in Acts chapter 28, verse 23, Paul was in prison, house arrest, and people were coming to Paul in great numbers, and Luke writes, from morning to evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So Paul's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And that's what all the apostles were preaching. And Luke's coming alongside of them and he's writing down these stories about Jesus's life to prove that, specifically to prove that. Why? I mean, why did he have to do that? That's another question. What's the motivation? He had to do that because there were certain things by the time that Luke was writing that made people like Theophilus wonder, that made friends of God wonder. Like what? This is a little context for studying Luke. I remember uh, someone talking one time about things he called defeater beliefs. And what he meant was that in every culture you are being taught certain things from childhood, basically. And you are taught those things so long, 
you don't even think of them as beliefs. They are beliefs, but to you, they just seem true. You assume them. You don't question them. And so when someone talks about Jesus, it's like these defeater beliefs kick in and make it hard for you even to listen. Like for us in our culture, a defeater belief might be that every religion's the same. And not every culture thinks that, obviously. Not automatically. But we're taught that. And so when someone from our culture hears the gospel, they struggle to take it seriously because they just assume this is the way it is. All religions are the same. And you're saying that they're not, so it can't be true. I don't even need to think about that. It can't be true. And in Luke's day, there were some defeater beliefs, for sure, when it came to Jesus, some deeply held cultural convictions that made it hard. Even if you were a Christian, and I think Theophilus probably was a Christian, and, and that Luke's writing to Christians in general, but he realizes they're Christians living in a certain culture. And there were certain things about Jesus and about what the apostles were saying about Jesus that was going to make it really difficult for people to be really sure and certain that he accomplished what everyone was saying he was accomplished, saying he accomplished. And you know, of course, the way I'm making that sound, I'm making it sound almost like a, only a first century problem or something. But I don't think the questions they would have been having about Jesus were only questions they had back then. Because what would have been some of the problems they would have had with what the apostles were saying about Jesus. And we kind of know the answer to that question as well from Paul's own testimony about the way people were responding to what he went around saying about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So in other words, Paul preached Jesus as Messiah. That's what he means when he says we preach Christ. And we talked about what that word Messiah meant, but think hero of heroes, God's solution to all of our problems. And yet it's not just that. Paul says we preach Christ crucified, the Messiah crucified. And to Jews, that was a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. And so what was it that made what the apostles said God was doing through Jesus surprising? It's not just that, he, that they said he was the Messiah. People could maybe stick with that. It's when they said he was a crucified Messiah. At that point, people were like, okay, I'm, I'm out. That makes no sense. And, and you can see how that would mess with people, first of all, even from a Bible standpoint, really. If you knew the Old Testament some and what it taught about the Messiah. Even if you were a Christian, one thing you could see might be confusing as you thought about Jesus dying on the cross was the fact that it was the Jews, the, the people that the Old Testament was written about and the people who received most of the promises about the Messiah who rejected him. And so that's one thing that had to be hard in the early church, reading the Old Testament, seeing these promises, and then looking around and seeing so many of the Jews hating Jesus and rejecting Jesus. And then another thing, maybe from a more worldly standpoint, would have just been the commonness or ordinariness of Jesus, if, if you think about it. Because here you, you are, you're talking about Jesus as the Messiah, and you're saying this is the gospel, the good news about the Messiah. 
And that word was, was not a word that Paul and the other apostles made up. It was actually a good news gospel. It was a word that they used as Roman propaganda for the Caesar. It was the good news that Caesar, the gospel that Caesar was the ruler of the entire world. And so here you are out there using this loaded word and you're talking about someone as being the ruler of the universe in cultures that were all about power and strength. And yet the very next thing you're saying about him is that he was crucified as a common criminal. It's like you can imagine. So you're telling me <laughs> this, this Jewish guy is the king of the world and he was crucified. Yeah, right. I mean, the Jews rejecting Jesus, the, the big claims contrasted with the ordinariness of Jesus and the way that he died, those are some of the things that would have made the message about Jesus confusing for a lot of people. And you have to imagine would have been a struggle for early Christians even. Did we get this right? And so Luke's writing, he says it, he's writing the history of what happened to Jesus in a certain way to deal with problems like that. And so as we read the gospel, we read these stories, we're asking ourselves, how does Luke answer that question? These stories are put here to help us answer those kinds of questions. And one thing you see right away in chapter one is that Luke does not shy away from those objections at all. He's not embarrassed by them. Instead, in fact, it's almost like he presses into them, leans into them. He's gonna answer those questions in this gospel, but in the first couple stories, at least, in the, in the introduction, it's almost like he takes these questions and he's like, hey, let's put them up on the board in front of the class so everyone sees them because I am not afraid of these questions. And the first story, verses five through 25, he sets the stage. This was last week if you were here, but you remember he makes it clear that what God was doing through Jesus is epic because we have all of these promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And yet it's been about 400 years since God talked. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And in Malachi, after the hard, all the hard things that the Jews had been through, God said, it's not over. I'm still committed to my promises and to my plan. And what's coming next, before I step in, I'm sending a prophet like Elijah. And here in Luke chapter one, verses five through 25, after all these years, the angel is saying, he's quoting Malachi, and he's saying, this is the moment you have been praying for. This is that. And yet what happens? A messenger from God comes to this Jewish priest who's been praying for this moment his entire life probably to tell him about what God's doing as he is in the temple praying God would do it. And yet what happens? What happens is he doesn't believe it. He says, how will I know this? I want a sign. Which seems to me to be the exact kind of problem people could have been wondering about the Jews in general. Can we be right about what God's doing through Jesus when so many of the Jews don't believe he's the Messiah? And yet as Luke tells this story about Zechariah, he's like, you know what? This problem of Jewish unbelief is not new. If you look back all the way to the beginning, Zechariah didn't believe it first. And yet his unbelief didn't stop God's plan from moving forward. 
And it's actually kind of ironic because Zechariah asked for a sign so he can know for certain that God is really fulfilling his promises, which is what Jesus will say later the religious Jews in his day were asking him for. Luke eleven twenty nine. 29, this generation seeks for a sign. And yet here, Zechariah asks for a sign and he becomes the sign. God takes away his ability to talk and his inability to talk about what God's doing through Jesus actually becomes the sign God is doing what he promised through Jesus. Zechariah's unbelief didn't stop God, but it did put him under God's discipline for a time. And I don't know if that's the full answer to the objection of the Jews not believing Jesus, but it seems like a start. And in verses 26 through 38, which is actually the passage I want us to look at this week, Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38, Luke tells a second story in which I think he focuses in more on the second kind of objection. Not Jewish unbelief here, but Jesus's seeming commonness, his ordinariness, the fact that it, it seems like almost, almost too much to say this about someone like Jesus. And if you look at verses 26 through 29, you see how Luke puts the problem in, in focus. And I know I'm not really giving you a good outline so far, but 26 through 29 is the setting for the story and the setting illustrates the problem I'm talking about. So you could uh, write down one question or, 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 or one the problem or one the setting if you're taking notes. But, but Luke says first, in the sixth month. And you read that and you ask what? If you look down at verse 26, in the sixth month, you ask the sixth month of what? Of what? And, and Luke wants you to ask that. Because to answer that, you have to go back to the previous story. It's a way of, of writing. And you don't have to go back very far. Verse 24, after these days, Luke 1, 24, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. So it's not like this is complicated. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with the rest of this story. But the reason Luke brings it up here is because he's wanting you to make the connection between that story and this one. He wanted you to go back in your minds, at least, to the story before, because the two stories are connected. And there's a pretty striking contrast between the two that's important. Although the story itself starts off with at least one similarity, verse 26 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, which of course is huge in and of itself, right? Because Gabriel, Gabriel, and in the previous story, we talked about Gabriel because he's the one who appeared to Zechariah in the temple. And so there's another connection. And Luke bringing up his name at all in either place is significant because he could have just said what? He could have just said an angel appears, but he names the angel. And there aren't a lot of named angels in the Bible. How many named angels are there in the Bible? Uh, one, or about two or three, I, I guess you could say. Michael, Gabriel, and, and Satan, I suppose. But Luke tells us this is Gabriel, probably partially because Gabriel's the angel who went to Daniel in the book of Daniel to explain what God's doing in the end times. This is the end times angel. So just obviously an angel showing up here is big because it's an angel and an angel is a messenger from God. And Luke doesn't want us to miss that either. He says he's sent from God. And yet important, this isn't just any angel. This is the angel God sends to explain how he's solving the problems of the universe. This is Gabriel. And so you see, 
how Luke right there isn't shying away from any of the claims he made about Jesus in the setup. I know us, sometimes when people have objections, we like to minimize the problem, but Luke's not interested in that. What is happening is big, clearly. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And that right there already, it's like, bang, problem in your face. If I'm talking to a Roman about Jesus or even a Jew, actually, but for different reasons, especially when you compare and contrast with the previous story, because in the previous story, the angel Gabriel shows up where? He shows up where you might expect him to show up. It's not Rome, but it's a major city, Jerusalem. And for the Jews, that's like their most important city. And that was an international city as well. People knew Jerusalem and it had a really beautiful temple. And that's where we find Gabriel in verse 11, in the holy place, in the temple, in Jerusalem, which if you're gonna see an angel is exactly the sort of place you might expect him, but not Nazareth. That's the thing. Because first of all, where is Nazareth? Uh, Luke tells us it was a city in Galilee and city stretching it. It's like a town or a village in Galilee. And Galilee is like a state or a province. And though it was part of Israel, if you were a Jew, it wasn't the part you wanted to be from because it was made up mostly of Gentiles. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles. And so that's the problem for the Jewish person hearing this. And for the non-Jewish person, it's just more, where's Nazareth? Because you might as well have written, he was sent from God to a city in Galilee called nowhere, nothing. This wasn't a a famous place. It wasn't an important place where you would expect anyone significant to to be from or anything significant to be happening. It's nowhere Galilee. And we know this is an issue. We're not just making this up because later this will become one of the objections against Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a common name. So to identify him, you might say who was his dad, but with Jesus, that was kind of complicated. So he became known for where he was from, Jesus of Nazareth. And that lasted even after he died in the book of Acts. They're still calling him that. And people would hear that and they would immediately do what? Dismiss Jesus, Nazareth. You're right. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And I don't know quite how to get the surprise of this, I guess. Gabriel going to Nazareth. But even now, someone like Kanye West moves to Cody, Wyoming, and the New York Times writes articles about it. What is this superstar doing in Wyoming? Because it's just not what we expect, how things go. And that impression only becomes stronger in the next verse when we see who he's going to. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And remember, the way we're supposed to read this story is by contrasting it with the one that went before. And the first contrast is the place, Nazareth versus Jerusalem. And the second contrast is the person, Zechariah versus Mary. And you can see even the way Luke introduces Zechariah, verse five, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly. And you hear that, and you know this is someone important and respected. He was old, too. We know that. He was a religious leader. He has this impressive ancestry, and so does his wife. And then we get to this story, and we just get what? Mary. And actually, he doesn't even say her name right away. He just says, there was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And Joseph is important. 
He was of the house of David, so we get his ancestry. But for Mary, all we get is that she's a virgin. And of course, it doesn't say her age here, but if we look at the culture at the time, we can assume she's really young. I can, I've seen guesses anywhere from 12 to 16 years old. Zechariah walks into a room in Israel, people pay attention. A 12-year-old girl walks into the room, no one's noticing. This is not a significant place, Nazareth. This is not a significant person, Mary, at least to most people in Jesus' day. Nowadays, we at least say we want to treat women with respect, but that's not the way it was back then when Luke was writing. This is not someone that anyone would have thought of as really mattering, and yet look at what Luke says, the angel said to her. Verse 28, his perspective is different. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And both parts of that greeting are really striking. Uh, First, O favored one, because Gabriel didn't need to say that. And we'll actually see that he says it twice. So this must be something that really stood out to him as he looked at Mary. He uses it here almost in place of her name, even. Instead of saying, greetings, Mary, he says, greetings, O favored one. And this is the only place in the Bible I can find anyone being greeted like this. And knowing how much the Bible repeats itself, that's got to be important, especially when it's an angel looking at you and saying, O favored one. And the root of that word is grace or kindness. So he's looking at this young woman and saying, God has shown you great grace. That's the first part of the greeting. The second part, the Lord is with you. And that one is a repeat. Judges 6.12, an angel says that to Gideon, who was the one who was going to rescue Israel. In Samuel, Nathan says it to David. And another prophet says it to a king in Judah in Chronicles. So saying the Lord is with you is a pretty big statement in the Bible. If you look at it up to this point, it's something angels and prophets say to heroes and kings. And I think Luke wants you to feel the shock of that. And one reason I think he wants you to feel the shock of that is because that's exactly what he points out to Mary in verse 29, about Mary. In verse 29, he says, but she was very perplexed at this statement. And in case you missed that, he says it again, and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. And I like how Luke points out twice what it was that she was perplexed and kept wondering about. Because for me, I might think it would be just the angel showing up that confused her. But what she was really perplexed about was the message, the greeting. It's not just the angel, it's the message. How could this angel say something like that to her? This little teenage girl in nowhere Galilee is visited by a messenger who is coming straight from God and speaks to her as if she is someone significant in God's plan. And she's like, what? What is going on? That's confusing. And sort of the way Zechariah, a Jew, not believing the promises about what God's doing through Jesus, illustrates the problem of so many Jews not believing Jesus, this statement and Mary's confusion kind of illustrates the second problem, the contrast between these huge claims being made about Jesus and the seeming ordinariness, the the commonness of the people involved. It's like Luke starts out his gospel. I want you to be certain. So let me get straight to it. You wonder about me making all these huge claims about Jesus when you look at him and he seems kind of like this no one from nowhere. Am I really saying 
that he is the big one, that, that what God's doing through him is the most important, most significant work in the history of the universe. I, I know that's a question because even Mary was confused when she met this angel. So let me be clear from the beginning, I am saying that. I absolutely 100% am saying that. Look at this angelic announcement. The angel is here to prove that Jesus is the one. Verse 30, you've, you've got the question, the setting in verses 26 through 29, which gets you thinking about the question, the, the problem, and you've got to the answer. The angel's announcement in verses 30 through 33 helps us see how big Jesus really is. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, which again is the same thing he said to Zechariah. So we're gonna contrast and compare a little. And here's the first difference. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So this is not something she's praying for. This is not something she's anticipating. This is something that's gonna come as a complete surprise to her. But it is something that is a demonstration of God's grace and kindness. And you notice how he repeats himself here, the angel, because he's already kind of said that. And so I think that's like the angel saying, now Mary, don't get confused. I said, greetings, O favored one. And I see now you're confused. So let me say it again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. In other words, you, you don't have to worry. You are hearing me right. I didn't accidentally show up at the wrong place. It's funny, uh, I was thinking, if we were telling this story about Jesus to someone in Luke's day, these verses might be where they would stop us and say, wait, are you sure you're telling this story right? Because I, I thought I heard you say an angel, Nazareth, and like now this young virgin. And Luke pointing out the angel repeating himself like this seems almost like his way of saying, yeah, I know what you're thinking. This is not where you would expect it to happen. This is not who you would expect it to happen to, but this is exactly how God is working. So let me be very clear about who we are proclaiming Jesus is. And it's this is gonna be important because it's highlighting again the problem the whole rest of the gospel is gonna answer. See what I'm saying? Because this is not just a story that we're reading over the, the next few weeks or months, years, whatever. This is not just a story that we're reading about someone dying from, on the cross. This is a story written to prove someone dying on the cross was who God said he was and that he did what God said he did, even though he looked so ordinary, and even though his death was so common and shameful. And so obviously then we need to know who God said he was and what God said he was gonna do. And in the beginning, Luke is saying, verses five through 25, he is the fulfillment of all the promises. He is the one, he is the one. And people are like, that's too much to say about someone like him. And so Luke here says, look at this angel's announcement because the angel here very clearly gives us three proofs that Jesus is the one who solves the problems in the universe, who's come to solve the problems in the universe. First, verse 31, what are these proofs? First, he, he proves Jesus is the one by giving us his name. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. I think I probably said it earlier, but Jesus was a pretty common name back in Mary's day, at least the Hebrew version of it, which meant Yahweh helps or Yahweh is salvation. And you can see why a lot of people would have named their children that, uh, because they were reading the Old Testament and longing for God to step into human history 
and answer their prayers and fulfill his promises. And so there were a lot of Jesuses. Actually, one of the fun proofs that the Gospels were written very early is that the names in the Gospel that were most common in the first century are the names that they attach explanations to. So like Judas was a very common name in the first century. So they have to attach an explanation. It's this Judas. Um, you wouldn't really know that unless you knew the first century. And Jesus was definitely a, a common name in the first century. And yet the difference with Jesus here is that Mary is being commanded to name her child that by an angel, which makes this name very significant because really the angel is identifying Jesus as the one through whom God is providing salvation. This is God's salvation. And that idea becomes very important as you keep studying the gospel of Luke and seeing what he tells us about Jesus. For example, if you look at Zechariah down in Luke 1, 68 through 69, when he's finally able to speak, he prophesies. And the first thing he says is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And then later, Simeon, when he meets Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, is in the spirit. That's how Luke describes him. And he looks at Jesus and says to God, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And you, you feel how huge that is, right? Because look, there have been men and women throughout history who have been trying to solve the problems of the universe and get us to accept their solutions. And this is the angel looking at Mary and saying, God says, your child is going to be the one. You need to name him Jesus because that's what he's coming to do. He's coming to provide salvation. And again, salvation is a big word. Please don't get so used to it, coming to church for so long. As we read the rest of chapters one and two, we're talking a complete salvation. When we think salvation, we usually just think forgiveness of sins, and that's good. But the salvation that Jesus is coming to provide is even bigger than that. We're talking about, you look at one and two, he defines the salvation. And we'll get to that as we look at what Mary says, as we look at what Zacharias says. That's Luke explaining what it means for Jesus to bring salvation. And as he does that, he talks about Jesus as the answer to our spiritual problems. He talks about Jesus as the answer to our economic problems. He talks about Jesus as the answer to our physical problems. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. The angel makes that clear first by giving us his name. He is salvation. He is the one. Second, by identifying his title, verse 32. He says, he will be great. And he says that about John the Baptist as well kind of, except he, John the Baptist, he says, he will be great in the sight of God. And here, it's just, he will be great. Which sounds almost like too tame a word for us, because we're like, dinner is great, or uh, your day was great. But it's not an ordinary kind of word when you think about its Old Testament context. Because what did God promise Abram way back in Genesis 12? I will make your name great. And then David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I will make you a great name. And actually later, Micah chapter 5, verse 4, there's a prophet who comes and he talks about the Messiah. You know what he says? He says, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great 
to the ends of the earth. And so as the angel talks about Mary's son accomplishing salvation and says he will be great, I'm sure he's wanting us to think about what's being said to Jesus in those kinds of earth-shaking key moment in redemptive history terms. When I say salvation, think Abrahamic covenant, think Davidic covenant, think, think prophets and messianic king. And that only becomes clearer in the next phrase in the verse, and he will be called the son of the most high. I hope you, I, the Bible's amazing, isn't it? And Luke, you're gonna see, is so amazing. It's so fun to tap into what these phrases actually mean. He will be called son of the most high. And he, here he's describing Jesus and he's also kind of describing the salvation that he's talking about. And, and we look at this and most high obviously is God. That's not a hard word for us. It's a, a title that reminds us of God's transcendence. It's like a picture word. He's not low like us. He's not ordinary. He's lifted up. He's exalted, he's most high. The first time that most high is used in the Bible is actually in Genesis uh, chapter 14. Melchizedek is called a priest of God most high. And he's blessing Abraham. He's saying, blessed be Abram of God most high. And Genesis 14 is kind of the definer for what it means for God to be the most high God. And that whole chapter is putting Abram in the position of being like a king. It's comparing Abram with human kings and saying Abram is gonna be like a king. And actually you look through the Old Testament, most high is a name for God that pops up primarily like 90% of the time in connection with kings. And then even maybe more specifically when God's provided salvation or is in the act of saving, keeping his promises to his people and to his king. And so you hear most high, you think God, you think God's greatness, you need to think kings, you need to think salvation. Most high is a word we can understand. And yet son of the most high is a title that's probably a little more confusing for us. Partially because we don't always use the word son the way they did in Jesus's day. So we hear uh, son, and we almost automatically think literal son. And of course, they used it like that then as well. But it's not used all that, all that way all the time in the Bible, actually. A lot of the times that it's used in the Bible, son of, is as a way of describing a person's character or identity or functionality, what they do or what they're doing. So like, for example, Jesus called the Pharisees sons of the devil. And he doesn't mean you know what, the devil literally had babies and they're like a lot of them around here right now and they're these guys. No, he, he's saying the devil's a liar and you are lying and, and the way you're acting is connecting you to him. Or you could go the other way around as well. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, why? For you will be called sons of God. And what's, what's he mean? He means God is the supreme peacemaker and when you make peace, you are acting like God and identifying as part of his family. And so that's not all there is to what the angel means when he says Jesus is going to be the son of the most high, but it's like a building block. The most high is a king and he acts to save his people. And one reason Mary's son is so significant is because he's going to function like that. Now how? And this is where it keeps Popping. It's really going to pop by the end, I hope. But look at how the angel finishes in, in verse 32. He says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
And so those two phrases are connected here, being given the throne of his father, David, and being called the son of the most high. And you know, maybe a, a little Old Testament trivia will help you see the connection. Because who are sons of God in the Old Testament? There's more than you might think. First, later, Luke's going to tell us Adam was a son of God, Luke chapter 4, or Luke chapter 3. Not because Adam was God's baby, but because he was made in the image of God. His role was to establish God's rule and reflect God's character. And then who else? Angels, sometimes. Actually, you can read Job or Psalms. And then Israel, Exodus chapter 4, the nation is called the firstborn son of God. And then later, David and David's descendants. And you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And since in Luke, the angel talks about his father being David, after talking about him being the son of the Most High, this is probably the most important for, for this one. So think Davidic covenant. You remember how uh, we looked at the promise God made to David? That's why we did all that work in the Old Testament so we could understand uh, Luke. We call uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 the Davidic covenant. And you remember how God says David's going to die or David is going to die. And after he dies, God's going to raise up one of his descendants. And part of the promise that God makes that descendant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And so he's saying the son of David is going to be a son of God. And we automatically think he must be talking about Jesus, but if you keep reading 2 Samuel, it seems first he's probably talking about Solomon because he actually talks about David's descendant sinning. And we're like, remember when we read that? We're like, what's going on? A few of you came up and asked me that. What's going on is that while God is the supreme king, he is choosing someone from David's line to be king under him. And when that son of David becomes king, he's acting in a sense like God. He is a son of God. And the Psalms even pick up that language. If you turn to Psalm 2, which is this big messianic psalm, and we usually first apply it to Jesus, and it definitely applies to Jesus, but it's also talking about what happened when one of David's descendants was crowned king, Coronation Day. The psalmist says, Coronation Day is the day when God would say, Psalm 2.6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king would say, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And so now you take that and come all the way back to the angel's announcement to Mary. He's proving that even though she looks so ordinary, God in this moment is acting in a huge way through her because her son is going to bring salvation to the world. And what does he mean by that? He's talking about the Davidic covenant. And how is he going to do that? God is going to give him the throne of his father, David. In other words, God is going to make him king, Jesus. But not just any king, the Davidic king, but not just any Davidic king. And this is, this is where I think this passage really starts picking up. The angel is showing you how important Jesus is by his name, his title, but third, his conception. Third, his conception. But you know, let me try to set this up so you really see how big this is. And we're working today. This is a lot, isn't it? I hope, I hope you're following. <laughs> we're working. He's trying to help us. And so I want you to see how big his conception is and how it fits even in this passage. Because if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's kind of a problem with the Davidic covenant, actually. 
And, and the problem's not with the covenant, obviously, but the people. Because you remember, the Davidic covenant is the biggest covenant. I was quoting that one guy when we talked about it. It's the, who talks about it in Lord of the Rings type figures. It's the one covenant to rule them all. The Davidic covenant is God's plan for fixing the problems of this world. And so God tells David that one of his descendants is going to reverse the curse, basically. He's going to pick up the Abraham. He's going to be the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant and brings blessing to this world. You read the prophets. That's what they expected him to do. And God says he's going to be a father to this descendant of David. But see if you can remember this part, the next statement. When he commits iniquity, when he sins, God says he's going to punish him. And so the idea is, follow me now, there's going to be a descendant of David who brings complete salvation. But to do that, he has to be completely obedient. And we've seen judges, the nation can't keep the Mosaic covenant, and so they can't bring the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And so now we see God narrows or focuses it in, and he gives a descendant of David the opportunity to represent the nation. And yet, what happens after that? Read the book of Kings and Chronicles. They can't keep it either. None of David's descendants are completely obedient. And the ones who are pretty obedient, they die. And they have disobedient children after them. And so they end up getting the whole nation judged. And they even get kicked off the throne themselves. So by the time Mary is speaking to this angel, there hasn't been a descendant of David on the throne for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so at first you read this promise from an angel in Luke 1, and you're like, it's exciting, right? Because they're in exile, Herod's king, and it kind of sounds like God's hitting restart on the Davidic plan. And so, of course, how might you assume that would happen? Okay, you think, okay, he just told me Mary's engaged to Joseph, and he's of the house of David. And so the angel must be saying, Mary and Joseph are going to get married, and they're going to have a baby, and that baby's going to be, and he's going to be crowned king, and when he's crowned king, he's going to be called son of God, and, and he's going to rescue Israel, which is exciting, except for all the history and how it didn't work before, which is maybe where the angel's next statement gets you wondering if you're fully tracking with him, because he says, verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And we've been talking about the Davidic covenant, and a lot of that language is similar, but that's a little different than how it's put in 2 Samuel 7, exactly. Because in 2 Samuel 7, it talks about his throne ruling forever. And so it's not so focused on the individual, but the line of David. And yet here it's he. This is Jesus personally ruling forever. And that makes you wonder if the angel isn't talking about someone bigger than just another descendant of David. And I think that's why God has Mary ask this question, verse 34. And I hope I'm not being confusing, but people in Luke's day would have been looking at Jesus and been like, really? A Jewish guy executed on the cross? You want me to take him seriously? And Luke is like, Really? Let me tell you why. He's Jesus. He's God's complete and total rescue plan. He's great. Think Abraham. Think David. Think bigger because he's a descendant of David. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But wait, there's more. If you think that's big, it gets even bigger. We're talking about someone who's going to be able to rule forever. You're like, how's that possible? And that's why God has Mary ask this question because it's a strange question, honestly. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And it almost feels like Luke's hitting repeat here as he's writing because he told us up in verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph and the virgin's name was Mary. So this is the third time. 
And yet, even though he's emphasizing she's a virgin, it's still a funny question here because she's asking the angel how she's gonna conceive and have a child when she's actually engaged to be married. Luke already told us that, so it doesn't like, seem that complicated. Like, isn't it obvious, Mary, how will this be? You're gonna get married and have a kid, and that kid is gonna be a descendant of David because Joseph is of the house of David and be given a throne. But God has Mary thinking deeper here, and he prompts her to ask a question, I think, so that we won't be confused because her question gives the angel a chance to explain that one reason Jesus is so great is because while God, in a sense, is just continuing down this path he started all those years again years ago with Abraham and David, he's also doing something new because Jesus is gonna be a descendant of David, but he's not just gonna be any descendant. We already saw the problems with David's descendants. We need a descendant of David, but more. And Luke says, Jesus is more. Look at how he was conceived, verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And holy, at the very least, means set apart, unique. But even further, it means pure, perfect. And so this child is going to be a descendant of David, but he's going to be unique. Uh, uh, He's going to be a set apart, one of a kind son of David. He's going to be different. And here's the difference as we talk about Jesus being son of God. The reason David's descendants were called sons of God was because of their role. And that's why they were called that when they became king. They weren't called that before they became king. They got called that when they became king, Psalm 2. And yet the problem with them, of course, is that they weren't holy and they kept dying, which is what makes Jesus so awesome because he's the son of God, not because of his role. He's the son of God from conception here. And we know ultimately he is the son of God, the eternal son of God. And as a result of the unique role that the Holy Spirit played in all of this, Jesus is human, and you could say David is his father, but he's more, he's holy, and God has made it clear that he truly is the son of God. And so it's, it's just so cool because it's like we're looking at Jesus here, and you remember how we talked last week about scenes from the Old Testament sort of playing on a movie screen behind the story that Luke's telling? If you think of all this like a play. Up to verse 33, looking at Jesus, you might have been thinking, okay, I've seen this before. Uh, It's a descendant of David. But now Luke's like, hey, please stop the movie because I'm telling you, in Jesus, something even bigger is going on. And you know what signals that? The virgin birth. Because we've had stories like Zechariah and Elizabeth's before. When God wants to rescue the world, he's used barren women repeatedly. The primary one being who? Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, right? But how do you top that? Do you see what I'm saying? How do you top a 90-year-old woman having a baby after being barren her whole life? A virgin giving birth is God saying, yeah, it's like that, but better. This is the big one. This is the one. As Luke begins his gospel, it's like he's shouting, Jesus is the one. And he knows the objections. He knows how you might look at how ordinary he seems. Jesus of Nazareth, 
Mary. But Luke says, listen, this is what I'm telling you. This is what I'm gonna prove. In spite of all that, he, Jesus, really is God's complete and total rescue plan. He is the Davidic king who is gonna reverse the curse, who's gonna defeat God's enemies, who's gonna establish God's kingdom and rule forever, forever. I'm not just talking about another human king because they're just gonna sin and die. So God is doing something new. He's sending his very own son into the world and he's gonna be someone who's fully human and fully God. And how can I prove that? Look at how he's conceived. And if all that seems like too much to you, and you can see how it might've seemed like a little much to, to Mary, the angel gives her confirmation, verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And he gives us a reminder, and maybe you can think of this as the application. What God is doing through Jesus is awesome. When, he, when we say he's the one, we're saying he is the most important person in the history of the universe. His life and death change absolutely everything. He is salvation. And you know, if you hear what God says about Jesus and think, really, can God do all that through this one man, then you're hearing me right. If you've never thought that about Jesus, you haven't heard it. <laughs> we are saying it all hangs on him, everything. One person has lived and died. That one person is the most significant person in the history of the universe. Everything hangs on him. If you hear that and you think that sounds like, it, that sounds like almost too much, you're saying this one person is gonna be the one who solves all the problems of the universe? Are you really saying that? That sounds impossible. The angel in verse 37 gives you a reminder that all these hopes he's building up as he describes Jesus, we must not let the world's doubt steal them. God really is providing complete salvation through Jesus. Even if it seems improbable, you can count on it. Why? For nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus is the one. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. Uh, your word is like a treasure chest. We tap on that and there's just beautiful, amazing, shocking truths to discover. And Lord, it's like a, it's like a, ocean we dive into it it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and so we just want to ask that your holy spirit would enable us to do this work as we study the gospel of luke like this trying to pick apart what you're really saying not just so that we can know a lot of information but so that our hearts will be warmed and our souls thrilled as we come to see jesus you for who you really are god these next weeks put jesus on display help like, we, like never before in our lives. Please help us not to be the people who are like, I know that, I heard Luke 1 so often, virgin, all this stuff. Lord, help us to be people who are, who are just amazed because, and, and just in awe and who worship the way Mary uh, worshiped because you've enabled us to, to not just know some facts about Jesus, but you through your spirit have enabled us to, to see the glory of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. In your name, our great Savior, amen.